Good morning. And thank you, Scripture Reader. You did a beautiful job. Thank you very much. Uh, this morning, we're going to dive right on in to another piece of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to talk about the very opening, how Jesus opened that sermon. And that little section, those first verses that my brother so well read this morning are called the Beatitudes. Many of you are very familiar with this. This is not a new concept. But as we journey and we come back to engage in the life of the church and we want to go back to the word of Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount so that we can move forward and be prepared for the future. I'm just so glad that each of you are here today. Y'all are beautiful. In the words of Bishop King, hello, beautiful people. You are beautiful to me and in the eyes of God. And welcome to those who are online. We're so happy you joined us today. And to the great man of God who could not be here today, we ask for your prayers for his continued healing. And uh, as we move forward, uh, we all keep holding him up in prayer. The first part of these Beatitudes, the part that I'm going to talk about, I'm going to stop at verse 6. I'm not going to go all the way. Pastor is going to pick up, Pastor Dwight is going to pick up the next part of this. But this first part, many theologians say, are the negative aspects. But I would say they may be less favorable until we get into this scripture a little deeper. And then pastor will come behind me and do the positive aspects. So let us go to the Lord in prayer. O oh Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Lord, how gracious are you and how endless is your love and how great is your compassion for us. No other can compare to you, O oh God. And I thank you for teaching us to be the sons and daughters that you have called us to be. Thank you for showing us your will and your way for our lives. Lord, please speak a word of instruction through me today. Please help us to live lives worthy of our call in Christ Jesus. Now, O oh Lord, my, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O oh God, my Lord and my Redeemer. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Come, come journey with me, back in time, back to the future. Let's imagine we are in the large crowd, that we are there among those who have traveled from Jerusalem, from Judea, from Tyre, from Sidon, from all over the region. Let's just imagine 
that we're sitting or standing right there. We are among those who are sick and who are ailing. Those who have heard about the miracles of Jesus and started following him. They were following him so they might be healed. Here we are standing at the base of the mount. Now it doesn't tell us what mount, we just know it was a mount. Waiting for Jesus to live up to his reputation. Waiting for a touch from the master. Because we've heard that Jesus is a healer, a helper. And so we stand at the bottom of that mount. Jesus has made his way to the top of the mount. He surveys the crowd. He looks at his disciples as they are coming up to join him there. Now once they are there with him, Jesus sits down and begins to teach them. Now I don't think Jesus was in a hurry. I don't think he was trying to rush through his sermon. He just took his time and began to teach. Now during this time, it was customary for the rabbi or the teacher to sit down while his pupils stood and listened to what was being taught. Now, I'm sure many of you who are school teachers today wish this was still in effect. I hear so many of our school teachers talking about how they had to stand on their feet all day long. But I want to say thank you. Thank you all for your willingness to stand and help our children. Now, some of us say, or some say, Jesus went to the mount to get away from the crowd of people, basically creating a, a classroom for his disciples. But I say, let's consider this. Perhaps he went to the mount for better acoustics, for a natural microphone. Perhaps we've heard that before, haven't we? Maybe the mount allowed the crowd to also hear his teachings. See, some versions of the Bible read that he opened his mouth and taught them saying. See, this phrase means he stood or spoke in a very loud voice. His diction was exact and his message was clear. Now, if it were only for the 12, he would not have had to speak in such a loud voice. But this was an important message, and he wanted his disciples to know and to understand it. He wanted them to be able to share this message with others. And although Jesus spoke to the 12, 
He spoke loudly so the larger crowd could hear also. Thus, it is for all of those who follow Jesus, this message was for his disciples there in that time, but also for his disciples here today. So often Jesus taught with his actions, but here on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught with his words. Beatitudes is such an interesting name for this section of Scripture. I kind of like it. I, I mean, I really, I said, wow, Beatitude, that's, that's really a cool name. Now, it speaks of a particular literary form that starts with blessed or blessed. The word itself means blessed. But when the word is taken apart, and it has an even deeper and more powerful meaning for us today. When I hear the word Beatitudes, two words come to my mind, be and attitudes. See, the word be means live, exist. And the word attitudes means a settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something typically one that is reflected in a person's behavior or position of a body proper to implying an action or mental state. B, attitudes. To go a little further, attitude, attitudes are thought to have three components. I know, I'm getting there. Three components, a cognitive component, which are your thoughts and your beliefs, you know our head. An affective component, affect, meaning uh, how the object or person, issue or event makes us feel, your heart. There's also the third component, a behavioral component how attitude influences your behavior, your hands and your feet. In my mind, Jesus is teaching us how we should live and exist in community, taking on these traits, body, mind, and spirit, fully embracing this Sermon on the Mount, these Beatitudes allowing these concepts to penetrate our head, our heart, and our hands. We are not just to live out these words, but we are to be these attitudes for the world. This is how we should live. This is how we should exist. The Beatitudes are important because Jesus is teaching his disciples and those who follow him how to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. I am sure Jesus' words were very unexpected. This wasn't what they had planned. 
See, these words changed the entire way of thinking about the reign of the Messiah. People were waiting for him to come and take over the political system, the whole thing. He turns to the 12 who have given up everything to follow him. The 12 who were financially poor, who have nothing, who must beg for whatever they get. He turns to them and says, blessed are the poor. Now later on, it is translated the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He turned to those who have left their families, their jobs, their homes, who desired nothing but Jesus, and said to them, it's worth it. It's worth it. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. I didn't forget you. It might look like that I have forgotten you, but yours is the kingdom of heaven. Wow, what a twist. Now I'm gonna give you a little trivia, you never know when you might need it. If you go back to the Old Testament, the last word of the Old Testament, if you look at from the King James Version, is cursed. Cursed. That was the word that the people were left with. So how beautiful it is for Jesus to open up with, hey, despite your circumstances, despite what you're going through, you are a blessed people. But here Jesus make his declaration of the kingdom for the citizens of the kingdom of God, and he starts out with blessed are the poor. Those who we step over in alleyways, uh, blessed are those who pass on, that we pass on these street corners and never take time to help or even speak a hello. Blessed are those who have been overlooked and underserved by the society. Blessed are the poor. Those who have nothing except what they beg for. Certainly. Certainly, this is not what Jesus meant. Certainly, he meant to say, blessed are those who have lots of money and financial wealth. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's what he meant to say. Blessed are those with big houses and expensive chariots. Right? Blessed are those persons with political clout who have friends in high places. Certainly Jesus was talking about those who have enough wealth that they can afford to go to the moon for a weekend trip. Certainly, that's who Jesus was talking about. Those who are the ones that, at least who we consider blessed. But Jesus turns these thoughts on their head by saying, blessed are the poor, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wow, what a radical concept. 
those who are poor in spirit, see, they realize they can do nothing without God's help. They realize they have no spiritual righteousness of their own. They have no spirit except what God gives. See, the poor in spirit totally rely on God to fill them up. They are in the position of a beggar. They have given up everything to follow Christ. And they rely totally on Christ for all they need. See, Jesus is letting the disciples know your labor is not in vain. Your faithfulness has given you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus presents a very different agenda than what was expected. He presented, uh, he did not present the political or material blessings of the Messiah's reign but focused on the spiritual implications of the rule of Jesus in your life. See, regarding Jesus as Lord and King speaks to the ethics and daily living of each disciple. See, there's a code of conduct we follow when we follow Jesus Christ. And Jesus was teaching his disciples the code that he wanted them to adopt the code he wanted for them in their own lives. So he taught it regularly. He taught it repeatedly. He taught it habitually. He was this attitude. He existed as this attitude. Thus the Beatitudes speak to the character of kingdom citizens. These are who we should be. Jesus goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Oh, how apropos to read Psalms 23 that talks about how the good shepherd comforts. Oh, hallelujah. See, mourning comes from some form of loss. And I'm sure the disciples mourn the loss of their families, their friends, and their homes, and their lifestyle. I'm sure they mourn for those who were sick and sad, standing there at the mount, waiting for a touch from Jesus. But most importantly, they mourned for their souls, for the need for a savior, a need for a Messiah. They mourned. See, the word blessed means happiness. But just happiness, uh, you know, it's not just that. It's happiness not based on circumstances or chances, but happiness denoting a deep-felt joy, joy that cannot be changed regardless of what's going on around us. See, when we are poor in spirit, then we mourn for our sinfulness but we bask in the joy of the Lord. We mourn that we have not loved God with our whole hearts. We mourn that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We mourn that we have not yet reached 
perfection. See, we have a deep grief for our fallen state. A deep grief for the state of humankind. But we do not lose hope because our hope is built on Jesus. Jesus is the joy of our salvation. And we will be comforted. God will wipe away all our tears when we make Jesus our choice. Jesus knows all about sorrow. He was the man of sorrow. He suffered, he bled, he died for our sin. Thus grief is not new to him. But it is the way of the cross. I, uh, the next part of that Beatitudes is blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. See, according to David Gussick, the ancient Greek language defines meek differently than we do. Meekness in this passage does not mean passive or easily pushed around. See, when we think about meek, we think about just being treated any old kind of way. But that's not it. This meekness in this passage means strength under control. Strength under, under control. Doesn't mean you don't speak up but your behavior is controlled. See, Carson says to be meek toward others implies freedom from malice and a vengeful spirit. According to Bruce, the meek of those who suffer wrong without bitterness or desire for revenge. See, the meek knows that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Jesus was a prime example of this great virtue. Meek, he went to the cross. Never said a mumbling word on his own defense. Hmm. See, we must be meek before God and submit to his will and conform to the word of God. We must be meek before others being humble and gentle and patient and kind and long-suffering. Ah, those should sound very familiar. The fruit of the Spirit. Now, if you call yourself a Christian and you don't bear these fruit, someone may question if you're telling the truth. Because part of who we are says uh, that we bear this fruit. And we should be able to tell a Christian tree by the fruit that it bears. Hmm. See, the meek realize all they have comes from God. And they do not deserve God's favor, but thankful. They are thankful for God's grace. See, God promises to protect and bless the meek. 
those who are new creatures in Christ Jesus, their faithfulness is rewarded because they will inherit the earth. You, when you think of meek, many of you, you think of a sheep. That is our walk, to be like sheep. Because the sheep know where to find the good shepherd. They can hear the shepherd's voice. That good shepherd that leads us beside still waters. That shepherd that's talked about in Psalm 23. Meek as sheep who hear our shepherd's voice. And those who are poor in spirit, who mourn for their sin, humble themselves before God, are covered by God's grace. It is God's grace that leads us to hunger and thirst after righteousness. I tell you, that, that thought of hungering and thirsting after righteousness, starving for a word from the Lord, starving for a relationship with God, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Oh, that's powerful just to hear that. Nothing can satisfy them, that can't satisfy that longing except a touch from Jesus, a touch from the master. They're longing for a deep, meaningful relationship with Christ. Unfortunately, we see Christians hungering and thirsting for many things. But those things often are things of this world. They hunger for power, for riches, for authority, for, for success. We hunger for many things. And we go for that. Oh, we'll fight you tooth and nail for those things but too few hunger and thirst after righteousness. Too few are longing for holiness. Too few are seeking sanctification. Too few are reaching for the perfection in Christ Jesus. But for those who do hunger, who do thirst after righteousness, those who desire Jesus above all else, who desire Christ for their own lives and for the world, they shall be filled. See, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now, some of you today may have already decided to make Jesus your choice. But some of you may still be considering your choice. But if you need a touch from the master, if you need Jesus, if you're still standing at the bottom of the mount looking for that healing for a sin-sick soul, or maybe it's not you, maybe 
it's a family member, a friend. Maybe there's someone in your life that you know needs a touch from the master. Maybe it's an ailment in their bodies, in their minds, or in their hearts. But whatever it is, this altar is open. And Jesus will meet you there. So you can lay them down before the Lord. If there be one, you're welcome. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen.